Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a few more journeys into culture in Ireland and beyond. This time, rumba like they did it in Kinshasa in the old days with singer and songwriter Juanita Ayoka, how to read a film by looking at just three frames of it, and Jennifer Walsh on the patron saint of the internet. But we begin this time with the global reach of Kerry Guinan. In recent years, the Irish artist has been creating ever more ambitious ways to explore and critique the systems in which we live and work. Her 2013 Freedom of Entry saw her cut a hundred keys for a premises in which she was to have an installation, but to give away randomly the keys and permission to do whatever to the space. A recent Limerick poster project, Sell Nothing, heavily advertised, well, nothing. Now she's on to her biggest project yet, electronically connecting Dublin and Bangalore via a set of intercontinentally linked sewing machines in a work she calls The Red Thread. Culture File went to meet Kerry Guinan in her studio in Dublin to tie up the loose ends. No, I, I, in general, like, I work a nine-to-five job. Like, I go to my desk, my, and my work does bring me to a desk, actually, a lot of the time. I'm working at a computer. It's over there. It's over there, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you can see all my... Like, contracts <laughs> you know very artistic material sitting over there contracts and laptops and uh, just written notebooks so I have a working schedule like that but I, I am also aware that even my fallow periods are part of work you know and I'm increasingly starting to see work as just spending energy in general you know any kind of form of spending energy over time is work whether or not I'm actually at my practice I mean the thing that inspired the red thread was um when I was uh, over lockdown trying to teach myself how to sew as a hobby, you know, um, I was trying to fix jeans and it did a terrible job. <laughs> so, like, even in my fallow period, I am working. I always knew I was going to do something artistic. I either wanted to be an artist or a writer or a director or I had all sorts of ideas in my mind. Uh, but I also then had the double fortune of having a very good secondary school art teacher, Luke Colgarif. He was really important for my art education because he brought me to Emma and he showed me Marina Abramovich and just like outside the box conceptual artworks. There was, it was documentation in Emma of the work she did where she swapped roles with a sex worker in the Netherlands. I mean, that just like cut right through <laughs> to the centre of my brain. I was just so taken by those you know I was always interested in drawing and painting when I was in school but I have to say I never became the type of artist that devoted myself to a material I actually just didn't have the patience or like the the inclination to perfect a craft like that but I was fascinated by artworks that pushed boundaries or that just made me think about reality and preconceived ideas just a bit differently that were transgressive I suppose like I was just really really interested in art as a space in which things can be challenged and tested yeah kind of really explain why these artworks out of all the artworks like moved me uh, but I was definitely far more interested in that than painting or- oranges which my leaving source had me doing <laughs> so I suppose that, like that interest in art as a form of action as well was uh, with me early on that like art isn't just something that you put into a two-dimensional or three-dimensional object but that it can be an embodied experience that it can be an experience that actually directly intervenes with social realities and public contexts and you know working with others or working in public spaces 
Red Thread is a project that I began developing just over a year ago. It started out as a, a really big idea and now is actually coming to fruition, which feels a bit surreal. It's a live installation of sewing machines, which will be remotely controlled by workers in a clothes factory in India. The machines in Dublin in the complex gallery will be moving, the foot pedals will be operating the machine and those foot pedals are tied over the internet to foot pedals in the factory in India so that in real time the pedals move in unison and the movements of the machine are echoed. You have a factory full of workers in India working for you then? Not for me, no, Um, but they have volunteered to take part in the project. It's a small factory um, of 75 people total, of which there are 30 stitching workers and there will be six people taking part in the project. So there's going to be six machines on my end. Ultimately, I suppose it was all about using social networks and just connecting through people I knew um, to Indian artists in Ireland and through them to artists who are in the city that I was working in and then through them I was able to eventually like go and meet the workers in person and invite them to take part in the project. One of the things I was thinking when when looking at your work in general was this is the kind of work that uh, habitually bites the hand that feeds which must make your life more of a struggle than it than if you work in another way. I do bite the hand that feeds, yeah, definitely that's a a great way to characterise my work. But, you know, it hasn't stopped me from getting opportunities as well, so I wouldn't really frame myself as, like, someone who's, like, on the outside. I mean, I'm getting funded, so... (laughs) Uh, And, yeah, I bite the hand. Uh, I suppose The Red Thread is, like, a work in which I've moved away from that uh, critique of art, in a way, and, and onto bigger and broader themes. And I don't think that an artwork is ever going to be made that can um, break the art system, <laughs> you know. Uh, I think, like, art contains within it space for criticism of itself. So I'm not naive about what these interventions might do. Um, I am involved in political organising as well as my practice. So I, you know, I, I can see that that would be political naivete to think that uh, you could ever make something so destructive that like your own career uh, explodes or the, the system explodes. But I do think um, I enjoy challenging the space and uh, bringing to light contradictions within the space. And I think that's important that, you know, those are seen and recognised. In, in the roots of the project, I, I kind of see two previous things that you've done almost combined. And you had one piece, the sculpture that killed the world, which kind of made this imaginary spike through the world, connecting two places. And then you had another piece, portraits, which used a kind of hired workforce. So it's almost like you're combining those two ideas. Absolutely. So this project developed on from an exhibition I had in 2019, which featured both of those works. I became really captured by the way in which those works were collapsing distance at a really, really huge scale. And by the potential that we actually have to interfere with systems that are absolutely colossal and, you know, are um, organised at a global level, to interfere with those systems as just individual cooperating people who have a crazy idea. (laughs) Originally, actually, I was going to reach out to these workers through a trade union. So that's why I chose Bangalore, because I was really inspired by grassroots trade union organising efforts there, and particularly an all-women-led union of garment workers to 
organize the project in such a way where it would take place outside of their normal workplace, that meant I would have to remotely create a factory, uh, a factory space for them to work in and somehow negotiate enough time off for them to come and take part in the project that way. So it ended up being easier for everybody involved if I just went directly to where they were, where they were working. The red thread is a phrase that I had originally picked up in an academic context, which is when you're writing a piece, like a complex piece, my supervisor might pose me the question, you know, what is the red thread that binds all these complex ideas together? So I imagine it as like, yeah, this string that's pulling together really complex ideas into like a taut structure. The connotation of red as well um, reminds me of bodies and blood and, you know, it's a quite a bodily installation. So I was interested in that. Plus it rhymes, which always helps people remember, <laughs> remember. That was where the title came from. But it is interesting how much it just took on a poetics as I was carrying out the work, because I've just had to speak to so many different people across so many different disciplines and like workplaces and cultures and languages and and I've encountered research by others or um histories of you know textile production in Ireland and India and you know ties between our context in terms of colonialism and just finding all sorts of connections in the course of making the project and it really feels actually like that that the red thread has become almost like a vehicle for all these complex interests and disciplines to come together to make this quite taut you know structured (laughs) work Kerry Guinan there and the red thread will be at the complex Dublin every day from May 4th to 10th You know the problem with film criticism? It just isn't random enough. But academic and writer Nicholas Rumbies long ago struck upon the solution. He invented 10, 40, 70 reviews. Simply pause the movie at exactly the 10-minute mark and talk about what you see in that frame. Move on to 40 minutes, repeat the procedure, then 70 minutes. According to Rumbies, who teaches the method to his students in Detroit, 10, 40, 70 remains a powerful approach to escape tired, stale ways of thinking about films, as he told Culture File. You know, I'm a child of the 70s, and I remember when VHS came onto the scene, which in in my part of the Midwest was the late 70s, it was amazing to be able to have some control over the film. And, you know, like the Blues Brothers or the films that I had loved growing up, I could suddenly pause and fast forward and rewind. But in the pausing, to look at a specific scene on VHS, of course, it's very distorted, you have frame drag and you have movement. And DVD then, you know, made it possible for pristine to almost return cinema to its roots, which was the photograph, you know, those 24 frames per second. When you hold up that celluloid and you look at it and you realize that these are photographs and and the beauty of that, you know, the still again is a source of beauty uh, in the film. Why 104070? Well, that, that was also fairly random, and I don't know if I would do it again that way. I wanted it to be sort of thirds. And, uh, you know, so 10 minutes, 40 minutes, 70 minutes. I was thinking if you had an hour and a half film, uh, a 90 minute film, that might get you through thirds. And of course, for a longer film, it, 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 it doesn't go quite far enough. But I just like the sound of it. I, I like the rhythm of it. And it just seemed like a memorable uh, set of numbers. Of course, sometimes you find nothing. Um, you know, it might be a black screen, which is, 
interesting to think about the amount of maybe blankness in a film that you don't know during the transitions. And I also love the fact of you don't know it might not be a fruitful frame. It might, it might hopefully one of the three will be fruitful. But even the ones that aren't fruitful, I thought, could teach us something maybe about the beauty of the film as it exists in stills. It's not a, a hard doctrine in a way because you will bring in information that isn't in that still. And I love that, uh, Luke, the idea of opening it up for the creativity of the writer or of the student or the critic or the fan who might say this frame is going to take me out of the film and is going to take me into a memory I have or it's going to be take me into a relationship to another film. So I also I really love the idea of not being bound by traditional criticism but allowing the frame to tell you what to look for. But also you are assuming that you have seen the film first. No, that's true and I've tried it with films I haven't seen and uh, the most fruitful way I've found to use that is to think about um, can you can you tell what the film is about from ten forty seventy? In other words, do you does it, how much does it reveal of a film that you might not know very much about? And in that sense, it almost becomes like you say a game. I hadn't seen uh, so a film called Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman, and uh, I I think I had seen it as a boy. And it terrified me. Uh, he's, a, he's a Nazi hunter, and uh, I think it's Laurence Olivier who he's hunting down. But I only remember it being about that. So when I did the 104070 on Marathon Man, it, it looked like it was a happy film. It, it looked like this is sort of a, a romance, and so it gave a complete <laughs> misimpression of the film. And I love that idea, and it, it can be surprising in that way as well. Hollywood's, you know, developed in such a way of cause and effect and narrative serves, you know, in traditional Hollywood. And I think what we've inherited from that narrative is the thing. It's you're, you're telling a story. And sometimes you get caught so caught up in the story, you forget the beauty of, say, set design or the, or just the, the composition of space on the screen. But in photographs, we're used to that. When you look at a photograph in a museum or a book, you, that's all you look at is sort of the composition. And I love the idea of coming back and recovering that, taking the frames out of their narrative flow, which can be in a great film. You're so excited or so invested that you don't really notice. You're not supposed to notice. The invisible style in Hollywood is all about hiding the process. And so there is something a little bit kind of related to maybe postmodernism or deconstruction in the sense of pushing back against the way that films mystify us and entrance us, which is their beauty, uh, but also to push back and maybe to look at the ways in which that happens by looking, at, like you say, at set design and frame composition. Do you still practice it? I practice it in teaching, and I found that it's a, a, a really useful tool for students who to, to release them from writing the typical paper where we're going to. And so in a class I'm teaching this semester, we did it with Get Out. And you do, you know, and in that, and in some films it works really well, and in that film that was really quite fruitful because the the pauses that they found, especially in the forty frame, revealed interesting things that I don't think any of us had seen before. So I find it really useful as a form of teaching, a, a playful form of teaching that that allows students to be creative. You know, for me, it's always the driving thing. Helping, I, I love it if anything that I write can help someone else be creative and create their own their own art. And I think a really nicely done ten forty seventy, you can be something that stands on its own 
as its own art that respects the art of the film in some way. The big development that's happened since the height of these uh, 1040s, 70s is the kind of epic series, which is now the staple of Netflix and the streaming services, where you probably have eight or nine hours, but you never have an episode that hits 70 minutes. They seem to present a kind of unique obstacle. Yes, and I'll tell you the other development, Luke, related to that is, you know, the development of really good online, not you know, like Reddit uh, critiques of these deep dives into some of these series. And I find that almost, in a sense, that, repla- that re- replaces the need for 104070 in the longer series because you have such passionate writing, even in certain reviews on IMDb, certainly on Reddit, and, you know, there, there are places where it's just the regular person going into a complete deep dive into the film and sort of pausing it on their own without using 104070, just looking at a scene or deconstructing it. And I find that that's sort of developed a little bit with some of these longer form series. Uh, and I think it almost that people are doing it on their own in their own way, you know, resting control and just um, seizing on moments. Nicholas Rumby's there on the joy of the pause button. 104070, Constraint as Liberation in the Era of Digital Film Theory, is available from Zero Books. And next on the Culture File Weekly, Juanita Ayoka, a musician and composer without whom a good chunk of London's bustling fusion bands, from London Afrobeat Collective to the genre-denting Animans and her Latin-infused band, Wara, would not sound the same. Ayoka was born in the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo and was brought up in Buenos Aires before moving to her current home in London. That background rings out on her album Mabanzo, meaning thoughts in the Lingala language of her home. On the album she sings in Lingala, French, Spanish and English in musical styles that crisscross the Atlantic, not least taking in the creations of her uncle, the legendary Congolese musician Franco. She spoke to Culturefile about a unique life and a unique sound. I feel like my my life's been very unique. It's very it's not common for <laughs> a Congolese girl and family to end up in Argentina and for so many years and absorbing that culture and also having the Congolese culture at home and even expanding that through moving into London, which to me was another culture again. So I knew growing up in Argentina that we were Congolese and I know and I'll think of Congo like from stories from my parents that they would tell me they would tell me or my grandparents when they came to visit me in Argentina so I have all that very unique experience my journey's been very unique in in that perspective if that makes sense back in congo you have a kind of really remarkably musical family because maybe one of the greatest of african artists franco is is your uncle or was your uncle that's also another amazing legacy right He's such a, he's, I would say, he's or, or a, a musical hero for the Congo, a huge legacy for music. And the reason why um, all of this has happened for him, he was one of the earliest artists to, to create the modern Congolese sound, which Kinshasa at the time was the hub. It was the place where all Africans 
um, wanted to go and and listen to that music and all that began way before because we had our, um, our independence in 1960 which the which at the time you know we we were trying to form our own independence we were trying to form our own identity and all these things after the the, the harsh colonial times that that the Belgians you know we you know they, they took the Congo as their property like Leopold II which is a terrible terrible dark history but through all that dark history there was this light that um, my uncle took part of that you know to through, from the rumba it was a way of creating this power of owning our truth or identity and our independence I mean the first song of the independence that they had it was a cha-cha-cha by Le Grand Calais that he, he wrote the songs and they traveled to Belgium and they sang in the delegation and with all these young politicians and, and on my mum's side my, my granddad um, was also a, a, a really big figure um, his name was Justin Bomboko sadly my granddad uh, passed away in 2014 and he was also a big figure on my dad on my mum's side and he signed the independence of the Congo so to have all these stories of my family um, my legacy I would say it makes you feel really proud it makes you feel it, there's a lot of reflections into it of how many people were, were seriously fighting for, for, for freedom in, in our own country right and to have that to me um, is very inspirational and I'm very very proud of all the work that my uncle has done they were they created the room but they also were inspired for from afro-cuban music so a lot of the earliest i would say congolese music from the 50s or, or whatnot were were highly influenced by afro-cuban music and then through the time time went by that people started to find their own voice and that's how modern congolese music was born and and my uncle was one of the biggest contributors to that <laughs> I, th I think that was kind of interesting, as you're saying, like one of the things about the uh, Congolese rumba was that it was coming, uh, lots of its roots were in Cuba. So in a way, you're following in that sort of family tradition where you're bringing yeah. the African and the Caribbean music together. Yeah, and I feel like I sh I've just been on a journey because um, at first when I connected with music, to me was like a refuge to it. I feel like a third culture kid at the time growing up in a culture that's away from your parents and it was a beautiful journey because I was also missing Argentina being in London so that brought me back into into the um, working with Wada into the Afro-Cuban world which has huge connection with my with the Congo and then with my identity and and everything else so the journey was like I'm going somewhere but it, it was taking me back to my roots Llévame al primer encuentro, llévame cuando me miraste, llévame. So yeah, with the languages, I, that's something that when I was for for many many years, I felt like how am I supposed to express myself? Because I can really express myself in Spanish, and and then I could also sing in French, and then I I can still sing in English. But with English, I always felt it's always been. Um, a bit of a of a fight that I was going inside of myself when you when you can express in different languages. I didn't know I didn't know what to <laughs> what to pick. And I really struggled with that a little bit. But then I had to go with how 
with my feelings, with my instincts. For example, For All Is Worth, um, it began, the first demo was a pop song actually, <laughs> completely different to to the recording and I felt like when I played it with with um, with Gareth Buckland who's my piano player I've been working with him for many years we transformed the song into salsa and I felt like okay there's room to to give it something else it's quite country uh, folk Cuban vibes into the song but also giving a little bit of a timba feel and salsa feel which I felt that the song deserved and then I just I just go with my instincts. When I feel like this song deserves something, then I go with that emotion, with that feeling, because the song is also speaking to me as much as I'm speaking to the song. So it was kind of a, of a, a build-up, I would say, with For All Is Worth, which I'm really proud of, because I wanted a song that was salsa in the record. I thought I don't want to do, I don't want to do an album without a, a, you know, a salsa number. So that's for all it's worth. With also, I wanted it to to sing it in English because I felt like it. <laughs> I was talking there to Juanita Aoka, and her album Mabanzo is out now on Strut Records. And finally this time, Jennifer Walsh would like those of you unacquainted with what one historian has called the last scholar of the ancient world to meet a certain Spanish cleric who finds himself bound to the modern world in ways he would have found quite surprising. Definitely sounds like a quiz. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. It is April 4th, which means it's the feast day of, in my opinion the most important saint in the Catholic calendar. I am talking, of course, about St. Isidore of Seville. Wait a second, you mean you're not familiar with the name? St. Isidore of Seville, the 7th century cleric who was instrumental in converting the Visigoths to Catholicism? St. Isidore of Seville, the noted scholar who invented the period, comma and colon? St. Isidore of Seville, the patron saint of the internet? Yes, that is correct. St. Isidore of Seville, a medieval monk, is the patron saint of students, computer users, i.e. all of humankind, but most importantly, the patron saint of the environment we live through, with and in, the World Wide Web. Why St. Isidore for patron saint of the internet? Why not somebody who actually used a computer? Well, St. Isidore is most famous for his etymologies, an etymological encyclopedia which covers everything from grammar, maths, geometry and music to languages, animals, geography, agriculture and food. Etymologies was an indispensable reference book in the Middle Ages, considered by many scholars to be the most influential book other than the Bible. St. Isidore drew on hundreds of sources to write slash compile etymologies, and it functioned like a medieval Wikipedia for over a thousand years, albeit with some errors. The entry on Ireland starts off strong, describing Hibernia as an island next to Britannia, narrower in its expansive land, but more fertile in its site, which, well, yes, we are indeed much more fertile than Britannia, thanks very much. 
Unfortunately, though, he goes on to describe how in Hibernia there are no snakes to be found, birds are scarce, and there are no bees, so that if someone were to sprinkle dust or pebbles brought from there among beehives in some other place, the swarms would desert the honeycombs. False information in post, St. Isidore. Snopes would be displeased. You can pray a novena to St. Isidore if you're serious about it, but more common seems to be a simple prayer meant to be prayed before logging online, asking him to direct our hands and eyes only to that which is pleasing to God during our journeys through the internet. I'm not a religious person, but it makes me wonder what we as people might pray for to better our journeys through the internet. That our inboxes be empty? That our ad blockers be robust? That our data belong to us and only us forever and ever? Amen? Jennifer Walsh's Things Know, Things There bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more sanctified tech next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.